Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you are listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. What do I got for you today? We're going to be talking about the Ukraine war. You remember that one? Yeah, yeah, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about Israel-Palestine, some more updates on that. And then we're going to talk about an interview that Tucker Carlson had with Douglas McGregor. I thought this was very informative and very insightful, especially in this time when we're uh, very lacking in both of those things when uh, dealing with political commentary. So all that and more coming up. All right, let's get into the rapid fire news. And it'll actually be rapid fire this time. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, We have the U.S. deploying two more carrier battle groups. These are now bound for the Middle East. So, uh, yeah. Supposedly, supposedly, we're doing this to cover Israel's northern flank in case Hezbollah tries anything funny. But you don't need... A carrier battle group to fight Hezbollah, especially when you have air bases in the region. I mean, like we have air bases in Arabia, in Turkey, in everywhere. We have air bases everywhere. You, you don't need, and, and and let's say that we did need a carrier battle group to do this. Like let's say that we're going to respect the sovereignty of all these other countries, something that we haven't done in quite some time. But let's say that we do need a carrier battle group to actually fight these people you don't need two which is what we have there now and you certainly don't need four which is what we're sending now what you would potentially want for carrier battle groups to do is not to fight hezbollah not to fight hamas but to fight iran you want to fight iran and that's why you're sending four not one not two but four carrier battle groups to this region that's what, that's what this is about. That is exactly what this is about. They want a war with Iran, and they made it clear. Lindsey Graham, Nikki Haley, they, they, they already made it clear. Mike Pence, too, but you know, do, does anyone really care about that guy? <laughs> but yeah, all these losers in our public office, they want a war with Iran. So it, they, they've laid bare their ass for all of us to see. That's what these four carriers are for. They want to... They want to be able to bomb Iran. Didn't, didn't Lindsey Graham say it? I, we, we covered it uh, in last week's episode. He's talking about we're going to take out Iran's oil and we're going to bomb Iran. We're going to take them out of the oil business. Oh, well, okay. So in order to do that, you would need uh, presumably a lot of air power because Iran is a growing oil power courtesy of China. Oh, and uh, yeah, they're reintegrating with the rest of the Middle East. In time, they may even, I'm not sure if they are or aren't. I don't think they are a part of OPEC because OPEC's, during OPEC's heyday, I mean, Arabia and Iran were not on the best of terms, so I don't think that they are a part of OPEC. But at some point, they might join OPEC. I mean, they have two to three million barrels of oil a day in terms of production. They are a large exporter as well. And a lot of that is coming from... uh, revived Chinese demand. Like, China has come in buying up Iranian oil, allowing them to bypass the sanctions. And this has caused a major revival of the Iranian oil industry, which has helped them deal with the sanctions even better as a whole, because when you have cheap energy, everything's cheap, and it makes the lives of people better. So the whole point of sanctions, which is to make life a living hell, 
is defeated by having cheap energy. Defeated partially, or defeated partially. It's still an unnecessary hassle dealing with everything else. But you can get by much easier with cheap energy. So, two more carrier battle groups for the Middle East. They want to start a war with Iran. That's what it's for. So, be on the lookout when those uh, arrive in the region. Um, but I'm not entirely sure if these people are really thinking about the region, like from a, from a battle space perspective. Uh, you want to go start a war, you would think that these people thought at least that far ahead. Hmm, if we go over here, who can hit us and with what weapons? You know, basic, basic questions. Like if you ever played a strategy game, you're not, you're not going to walk into the, the line of fire of your enemy's artillery if you can avoid it. And if you do have to do that, you're going to go straight for the artillery. So why are we doing this when the Iranians have a, a lot of really good missiles? And we'll talk about that more when we get to the interview with Douglas McGregor. Uh, but not even just Iran, Russia uh, and Hezbollah, the, all these rockets they have. We're going to put destroyers within range of the Israeli coastline close enough to where they can intercept these rockets. If they're that close, they can get hit by the rockets, quite frankly. And that's a danger that we really don't need. That's an embarrassment. If we lose a ship to Hezbollah rocket fire because they just spammed us with tens of thousands of rockets, that's an embarrassment. And honestly, I, I hate to be that guy, but at that point, we, we kind of deserved it. Not, not as in, a, oh, we, we're the bad guys now, although you could make that case. But like, if, you're, if our leadership is going to be so slow, if they're going to put a, a ship in range of ballistic missiles, knowing full well that the people that they're dealing with have those missiles by the tens of thousands and are willing to shoot you with them, well, I mean, we're just asking for trouble. We are just asking for trouble. And that's exactly what we're going to get if we keep playing this game. And these people really like playing this game. Two carrier battle groups. They're going to they're gonna try to bomb Iran, and it's not going to go the way they think it's going to go. It probably Iran and Syria, to be frank with you. that They'll never just let Syria go. They, they, they really don't like Syria for whatever reason. They don't like Assad. They, they want to see them destroyed. So... What's that? Iran, Syria, Lebanon, and maybe maybe a little bit of Iraq just for good measure. But I think they're gravely underestimating Iranian capabilities. Iran is not some third world power. They are a quickly modernizing military power. They're a modern military power, right? They're not, they don't have to be a superpower to fight you effectively in their own region. They're a very strong regional power with the backing of another very strong, great power, Russia. And I mentioned Iranian missiles, Hezbollah's rockets that they can fire into the eastern Mediterranean. Both of them have the range to get there. But even more dangerous than that are the Russians. They have fighter jets on standby doing patrols in the Black Sea. And what they're doing they're they're flying over they're staying airborne so they always have like a couple fighter jets in the air at any given time but these jets are armed with kinjal hypersonic missiles that's a carrier killer one hit is all it takes and it's it's a wrap and there's nothing we can do to stop that the second that missile is fired it's it's game over it will hit in minutes in minutes it's wraps like 
will actually shoot with that kind of distance one to two minutes it would be merciful because you you hear um the talk of these longer range hypersonic missiles and how they can cover the distance from russia to dc in a matter of like 10 minutes that's and they and people obsess about how there's no response time with that you're in the eastern mediterranean where this is you're sending these carriers into the eastern mediterranean the russians have these planes with these missiles flying over the black sea turkey is not enough of a buffer to give you any time to respond to that like by the time you've realized that the rocket has been fired at you you're dead i mean like what what kind of time frame is that like one to two minutes two minutes would be merciful you have no time to respond to that and it can kill a carrier and it will probably get some insane collateral kills if we're being completely honest here like what would what would a carrier getting hit with a missile like that do to the surrounding ships like, and the people on those surrounding ships because you know there's going to be debris there's no way you just get hit with a, a hypersonic missile and i sh can't stress enough the power of these missiles and it really it really just hit home for me when i saw the picture of that ukrainian port and it got hit with a hypersonic missile they turned a port into a dry dock there was no more water there it got hit so hard that there was no water it was literally a dry dock and you're talking about hitting a carrier with one of those there's no way the surrounding ships make it out of that unscathed they will take significant damage just from being nearby the point of impact assuming that the the missile doesn't fly through them on the way to the carrier like it's crazy to think about what a hypersonic missile can do to these uh, relative to an actual port these fragile vessels and you have the russians just flying them over the black sea casually and, and all, honestly it's also a testament to how much farther ahead they are in this realm of both the technology and the the production the industry because they have enough hypersonic missiles to put onto planes and keep those planes flying over the black sea constantly you're not going to do that if you have like one five 15 of these you're not going to do that if you have like 30 40 no you're going to do that if you have a couple hundred of these kinds of missiles ready to go that's and meanwhile we still can't wrap our minds around developing a single hypersonic missile we're still working on the dark eagle and they're just casually floating above our heads, reminding us the weaponry that made battleships obsolete, which is air power. Air power and the ability to, fi to fire a bomb at you from the sky is what made the battleship obsolete. And air power is the entire reason a carrier it became the dominant mode of naval warfare. And, and it's not even just the planes themselves, it's the weapons that the planes can carry. Because a plane can carry bigger bombs than you can fire from your artillery shell, your artillery barrels on a battleship. And you can have a lot more planes doing bigger missions and thus carrying more munitions. That's what makes the carrier so lethal. The weaponry that the plane can carry. So if you're dealing with an airplane that can take your ship out with a single shot, you're in danger. 
you're you're in danger and they're sailing m multiple battle groups into this region and it's not like these are um just fired off and then fire and forget no these are these are guided missiles these are guided missiles they will find their target they will lock on to the, the big fat slow moving carrier and they're going to destroy it four hypersonic missiles four to five is all it'll take and all four of those carriers are at the bottom of the ocean now and then what what are we gonna what are we gonna say what are we gonna do we have no more air power now our projection capability is hard countered by the hypersonic missile and nobody thought we'd get to this point but anyone who's ever you know observed history knew that something like this eventually had to happen weapons don't just stop getting developed because you reach a a pinnacle no every pinnacle is overcome with the new weapon sometimes that new weapon is a bigger explosion and sometimes that new weapon is much more subtle but renders everything else obsolete the hypersonic missile is uh, both in some regards it's a very big explosion but it's really really fast and that's what changes the game it's really really fast it's really relative to a carrier cheap to produce and you can have you can have a lot of them and you can have it's non-nuclear so you can actually use them you can put them on a plane a fighter plane of all that you don't you don't need a big ac-130 to use these things and you can kill a navy single blow carrier down all of your enemy's uh, ability to project power and in the russians case the enemy would be us your entire ability to project power is canceled because the platform, the, the floating airstrip that you needed for your air power to be projected is going to be sunk by a single plane with a single missile. That's lethal efficiency. That is asymmetric warfare. And that's what's going to happen if we get ourselves into this incredibly stupid situation. And it's going to happen on repeat. We can fight. A, a Sugoi fighter, we can fight the fighter, it's the missile we can't stop. And they're not going to let you just pull up on them before they can fire the missile, they're going to fire the missile. If you're going to attack them, they're going to fire that missile, and then there's nothing you can do to stop it. Even if you take down that plane, you've taken down one plane and one hypersonic missile. But they can fire that hypersonic from hundreds of miles away. You're never going to be able to counter that. And I, I, I know for a fact, I'm not the only one considering this. And I, I don't just say that, you know, in the screaming into the void type of way of there's no possible way I'm the only one guy. Well, I know for certain I'm not because there's Douglas McGregor and we'll get to the interview there. But again, in the screaming into the void kind of way, there's no way that I just a regular person on the internet have done these considerations and military brass hasn't. They have to have done. And they still go through with this incredibly bad idea. The result of which remain to be seen. Uh, and as we talk about going into the Middle East, these people want to start a war. What's that going to mean for the, the bases, the troops we have in the bases in Syria and Iraq? They're going to be in more danger. They're in more danger now than ever of being bombed by Iran and potentially Hezbollah, depending on where in Syria exactly they are. Because we don't like pulling troops out. Well, I mean, and now we have people to blame for that. 
because you know earlier on earlier on this year we had a war powers resolution to pull troops out of syria and 300 of our 400 representatives in the house voted to keep the troops there so we now have some direct responsibility here so we can hold people directly accountable for what's about to happen here which is that our troops are going to get bombed and ransacked by what comes and honestly it'll again be our fault because one we don't need to be in syria two we didn't need to stay in syria and three we're the ones trying to start a war with iran you can't start a war with iran and then complain when they bomb your bases in syria and iraq they want it's as if thinking just two steps ahead is illegal for these people either that or it's deliberate and you know it's a, like that you can be stupid and deliberate at the same time they think they can control this they think they're going to do all this thing they're going to create these crises to whip up support in america for the war oh no our troops got bombed we have to go bomb iran they think they're going to control it they think they're going to be able to manage this and they've learned nothing from ukraine which they also failed to manage they failed to manage ukraine they got some small uh symbolic victory by having blackrock come in and oh we're gonna we're gonna rebuild ukraine and we're gonna get all this money to do it there's not gonna be a ukraine for you to rebuild it's all gonna be in the hands of russia they're gonna get to rebuild it you're gonna get nothing oops and you gave away everything in exchange for nothing and and they can't accept their own failure and so they move on to one war then they move on to the next war, then they move on to the next war to try to save face, to try to save clout. Because what was the Ukraine war in response to? The disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, where they lost face, they were embarrassed by their deliberate failure to pull out in a, in a sensible manner. And then to try to cover up for that, they said, oh, we're going we're gonna to stand by our allies for as long as it takes. Remember that? Remember? As long as it takes. And as soon as there's a war in Israel, now it's uh, Ukraine who? After they gave everything to Ukraine. And then when Israel dies, we're gonna move on to Taiwan. It's just one thing after the next. Well, who knows? Maybe coast, maybe the Serbia-Kosovo conflict will start up soon as well, uh, just out of opportunism. Who knows? We'll just wait and see. I mean, it's not like the Europeans are gonna be able to do anything to stop Serbia at this point in time. But we'll see. And this is the pattern here. They lose and then they try to save face by doubling down on a war. And then they lose again. Ah, we're really going for that World War III bingo sheet. Uh, but yeah, we have troops in Syria and Iraq that are in more danger now. They're going to get bombed. We have Mike Johnson winning the House Speakership in a unanimous Republican vote. Now, supposedly, he's MAGA. But we know better than to trust politicians. We'll see what he does. And speaking of what he does, I also have that uh, the U.S. Congress has passed a resolution supporting Israel. And only nine representatives voted against the motion. Oh, and this was a motion put forward by the new speaker himself, Mike, uh, who's the name? Johnson, Mike Johnson, supposedly MAGA, putting forth a resolution to support Israel and saying that it was our top priority. Yeah, Israel's your top priority. Well, so much, so much for MAGA. Isn't it funny? Isn't it so strange how America First just goes straight out the window 
the second some other country has a crisis. Like at some point, we have to be we have to be serious here, and really think. If America is first, if we're going to put America first, we cannot possibly. It's just physically impossible for us to put America first and put Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan and Hong Kong and and every ally under the sun first. You can't do that. One of them, only one, can be first. And if it's America first, it has to be America. And there's no way you come to the, the, the conclusion. There's no way you can logically come to the conclusion that, yeah, we're going to give hundreds of billions of dollars well, tens of billion now, for now, it's only 40 billion. There's no way you come to the conclusion that we're going to give tens of billions of dollars to Israel and that Americans are going to have to pay for it. This is American money that you're giving. You're not sourcing it from anywhere else. There's no way you come to the conclusion that giving tens of billions of American dollars to Israel is an America first policy. There's no way you can do that. It... I just find it very entertaining and frustrating how quickly America First goes out the window when all these people who talk in endlessly about how this president is America last. Well, well you're cheating an election. But yeah, you, you can't complain about Biden and the neocons for wanting to start a war every two seconds and putting America last if you're going to put America last the second it's a war you agree with. The second it's Israel, now all of a sudden it's okay to give tens of billions of dollars to a foreign nation. No, no, it's not America first now. It's not in America's interests just because Israel is an American ally. What does that even mean to us? Israel's our ally. That means literally nothing to us when there is no longer a consensus in this country as to what the value of that alliance even is. It has no meaning. But alas, but alas, there's always Trump. We can always, <laughs> we can always, but man, dang, we have to wait till 2025 and the guy gets sworn in so far away. I can't. I have had enough of this Biden guy and all these so called Republican, well, they're Republicans, all these so called America first conservatives who just can't put America first to save their lives. I swear. Uh, you guys uh, you guys see that uh, interview. I, I, I've been watching some more of the, the Hill, the, the rising, the Hill. Uh, I've been enjoying it a little bit in my quest for quality news, entertainment, and consumption. But they had an interview with a Vec, Vivek Ramaswamy on the Hill's rising. And, you know, I had my conclusions and my beliefs about Vivek, you know, the, the, my presumptions about him based on what I had seen and heard of him. And every now and then it's always good to check back in with people you, that you've come to conclusions about just to see if those conclusions still apply. And those conclusions definitely still apply for Vivek. That nigga, <laughs> that guy <laughs> is, uh, it's hard to describe. Like I honestly couldn't, it was so jarring. Like, I would say I couldn't believe it, but I can. But it was just so jarring listening to this guy speak out of both sides of his mouth in the same interview. And this is like a 10-minute interview. There's, there's like 
Huh. So let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. You are both critical of and opposed to many of our commitments in the Middle East, except you want us to stay with Israel, right? You say that America should maintain the commitments that it has, but you want to get rid of many of the commitments that we have in the Middle East. You say that the United States should not get involved financially or militarily in this war, but when asked about that financial aid that we're already giving to Israel, the three to four billion dollars we give every year, your response is, well, we, you're, you stand by the commitments you've made. Well, well, that's a contradiction. You stand by the commitments you've made. Huh? Is, uh, and, and not only to that, not only to that, you say we, we need to, uh, an America first policy here, you don't want to get involved militarily or financially, but you're not going to withdraw any of the financial aid we've given to Israel, aka you're going to remain involved financially. The thing that you say you don't want, you're going to remain involved financially. And when asked about potential limits to that financial aid, this guy says, this guy says that we're going to give free money to Israel until Israel decides that it doesn't want free money from the United States anymore. And that that is somehow, and then he has the nerve to say that's in both Israel and America's interests. What the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> I can't stand listening to him. Like, it's it's such a strange thing for me because like, when when i'm with him you know when i'm with him and he's he's on the point and i'm like oh, okay yeah 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 it's like it's almost like hearing myself speak because like I, who else in american politics has, has brought up the monroe doctrine in a non-derisive way i know what i know of but and, and but then he he does shit like that where he immediately speaks out the other side of his mouth and it's like well, well hold on now okay well now you've lost me how are you going to, how do you not want to be involved financially and militarily, but you're not going to withdraw any of the financial aid we're already giving, which makes us financially involved. If you don't want to be financially involved, you have to withdraw that aid. And then how are you going to say that it's in our interest and theirs for us to give them free money to the tune of three, four billion dollars every year until they decide that they don't want the money anymore? Whose president are you? Like, oh my goodness. I can't stand these Israel simps, bro. I can't, the mental gymnastics is just absolutely insane. It's just absolutely insane. We, we won't even get into the, the Palestine slash Hamas simps. We, we won't even do it. We won't even do it. It's just, my goodness, the pretzels people will bend themselves into to justify doing something that we have no business doing. I mean, if you want the war, just say you want the war. Say it's it's a justified and moral war. All right, don't don't sit there and gaslight me <laughs> and say that it's in my interest to give free money to a foreign government forever until they decide that they they don't want the money. That's not how this works. They don't get to decide whether they do or don't get this money. We decide that. We decide that. And if we're not going to be financially involved, 
that means withdrawing that aid. But oh, but you stand by the commitment you made. I can't stand listening to this guy. <laughs> I am uninterested in what he has to say. Not not for the rest of this election cycle. No, no, sir. Uh, but we also have uh, the U.S. Congress. Uh, well, oh yeah, I just brought that one up. We have Wang Yi. Wang Yi. Uh, going to meet with Biden. Uh, and not just Biden, but uh, Biden, Blinken, and Jake Sullivan in a three-day visit to Washington. And they agreed to arrange a, a bilateral meeting between Xi Jinping and Biden at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum Summit, which is being held in San Francisco uh, this November. So when Yi, uh, as observant as he has been over the previous few years of Sino-American relations, I remain skeptical about whether or not this is going to go well at all and said that the road was going to be uh, really rough. Um, yeah. And last but not least, we have the mass shooting in Lewistown, Maine. Uh, 18 were confirmed dead when I read the story initially, but I heard that the number was around 22. And I'm telling you, these kinds of tragedies can be avoided. One, if the FBI did their fucking job, like uh, how many times do we have to sit here and go, oh, yeah, he was on an FBI watch list, but they didn't do anything about him. Yeah. Well, you're the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Maybe you should have done some investigating here instead of just leaving the nigga alone. But I'll digress. We, we, we wouldn't even get into the FBI. The FBI should be abolished anyway. We, we don't even get, need to get into that. What we need are more citizens owning guns so that these kill counts can't get that high. Because if you have more people with guns, more regular people with guns, if they're getting shot at, they're gonna shoot at the person shooting at them. So you're gonna end up with lower casualty counts, fewer people dead, and more people living. And the result is gonna be that these shooters get shot by the people that they tried to shoot. A great irony that saves lives. That's what the Second Amendment is for. Well, one of the many reasons we have it, and we should use it. But that is the rapid fire, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. But now, as we get into the meat of this episode, we'll start with the Ukraine war. Ukraine, hey, you guys remember Ukraine? Come on, guys, don't, it's me, Ukraine. Everybody knows Ukraine, you know. I stand with Ukraine, ghost of Kiev. Yeah, me. I, you know what? <laughs> Man, did they just fall completely out of the news cycle? So conveniently, too. I mean, it's not like they were losing or anything. It's not like their counteroffensive failed really badly. Oh, look, there's a new war. No, no, don't you don't need to look at that. But you know, we will, because you know, these things go on, and it's kind of my job as a hobby to do these things plus i am very interested in what the outcome of this war is going to be so of course i'm gonna cover it although i'll be honest i am also happy to be able to take a break from talking about the ukraine war i swear we we talk about basically every week any for like months like months 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 and well actually quite, quite frankly over a year so yeah, it's nice to get a good break from Ukraine, but it's too consequential to just leave alone just because the news doesn't feel like talking about it. Because they will talk about it again next year. Uh, 
and it's not going to be very good news either. But we'll start with Shoigu, Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, saying that Russia has downed 24 Ukrainian aircraft in one week. If that's true, that is a terrifying loss for Ukraine. Because it's not like there's uh, the United States, China, Russia, where they have where they have hundreds of aircraft to draw upon. No, they have one to two hundred. Like that that's the size of a normal air force, like one to two fifty. So you're talking about losing a, a major, major, major percentage of your air force in a single week, on top of whatever losses you had over the course of the war. That's really bad. Like, it's one thing to lose hundreds of armored vehicles and hundreds of tanks in your counteroffensive. It's another thing to, to go losing planes like this, especially when you're not being given planes at anywhere near the same rate that you're being given these armored vehicles and tanks and other things. These are even more irreplaceable than the ground equipment that they lost. And with the Ukrainian Air Force getting a, a obliterate like this like assuming that this is true right and assuming that this is true ukraine's air force is dying and and that's on top of the massive losses they took at the beginning of the war where the russians straight up bombed their their airstrips the, their air power has never recovered from it. so i just can't imagine that with losses like these uh, assuming that this is true i can't imagine that with losses like these the Ukrainian Air Force is going to be a functioning fighting force. I can't imagine that it's even going to be functionally present in the battle space come 2024. Certainly come the backbreaker offense in spring, summer of 2024. When the Russians go on the offensive, like a real offensive. And my goodness, you combine no Air Force with no air defenses because they're blowing through air defense missiles we, and the russians just keep spamming them with missiles ballistic missiles to get them to use up their air defense missiles well when the russian air force does come out in force and they're already trickling out because ukraine's air defense has been ground down enough for the russian air force to do lim limited operations they have to stay close to the russian line so they don't get shot but the Russian Air Force is now more present than it was for like oh, the whole year. Like I kept asking, where's the Russian Air Force? Where's the Russian Air Force? Where's the Russian Air Force? Oh, it's because Ukraine's air defenses were really good. Probably because it was based off of Russian air defenses themselves. And the Russians are very well aware of what their own systems are capable of doing, even Soviet era systems. So they weren't just going to send their own planes into that nightmare. They're afraid of their own equipment. And yet we don't respect it enough to treat it with the dignity of not saying stupid things like, oh, if we just give Ukraine two F-16s, that's going to turn the tide of the war. Two? They, according to this report, they just lost 24. What, what would two F-16s have done? Like, what would that have done? It, it's nothing. You're going to put them up in the sky. They don't know how to fly them. Not really. They haven't been trained to the fullest degree that they should have been. They're going to go up and they're going to get lit up by Russian air defenses. And then they're going to die. That's all that's going to happen here. Two more casualties is all that's going to be achieved by giving them two F-16s. Oh, my God. 
oh my goodness it's it's silly it's silly but we also have a, another report uh well uh some reports uh, i myself can't necessarily confirm or deny this but again like the report the 24 ukrainian aircraft got shot in a week if this one is true then it's another really bad side for ukraine because this these reports are suggesting that in certain parts of the line russia is advancing by 500 meters a day now obviously this isn't the entire front line otherwise russia would be uh well on their way to kiev so this is probably very uh they're probably taking the highest metric for very specific zones of the front where the russians are just making really rapid advances but my goodness 500 meters a day that's uh pardon my uh pardon my math here but if i'm not mistaken a kilometer is a thousand meters so if a kilometer is a thousand meters and they're moving 500 meters a day that means they're going a whole kilometer every two days if i'm not mistaken if i ain't mistaken so that's a shoot that's some really good progress in a war like this where you're fighting tooth and nail for every inch of land you can take. But if they're making gains like that, it hints at the deterioration of the Ukrainian defenses. Like, because before it was, the front lines really haven't moved much until Russia started with their, you know, their gradual offensive across the entire line over the course of this summer, parallel to Ukraine's great counteroffensive, which didn't really do much. The lines have only haven't moved this much since the beginning of the war. But now they're moving. And in some parts, if these reports are true, in some parts by as much as a kilometer every two days. So very ominous signs for the ukrainian fighting force again because if russia is able to make advances like that in parts of the front that means ukraine does not have men there or a sufficient number of men in those parts of the front to hold russia back so they have to fall back that means you have to redeploy troops from other parts of the line to cover the gaps now you're going to open up new gaps to be exploited elsewhere and every time this happens you're gonna, you're losing men you're, you're gonna get shot you're gonna people are gonna die and it's just at some point the bubble bursts right it's like it's like when you're able to touch a bubble and you're able to press down on it you're able to play with it a little bit uh but eventually the bubble pops if you put too much pressure on it and that's it's looking like we're getting dangerously close to that point in time if the russians are able to start poking and prodding at a, a soft ukrainian line if the ukrainian line is that soft that they can be pushed and nudged like that at various points along the entire front then at some point you're going to pop you can't maintain that forever and you certainly can't keep giving up ground especially when the ground further to your west is flat and wide open it's only going to get easier for the russians from here like, if you can't dig in and stop them now, it's only going to be easier. And I think that that's what we're going to be looking at sometime next year. We have also, we have various claims from the pro-Russian side, uh, claiming that Russia is taking terrible losses 
in their offensive operation. And they're looking namely at the offensive operations around the city of Avdiivka. Uh, yeah, they're claiming the Russia. I saw one report saying that Russia had lost like 6,000 men in, in a week since they t- undertook this uh, offensive round of Dievka. Now, given the propensity for pro-Ukrainian outlets to f- straight up lie, <laughs> like, like not even mislead, not even, oh, we got it wrong, but to straight up lie to our face about the Russian losses, uh, you know, <laughs> Russia losing half of its forces, half of its combat ability, half Russia fighting with toilets and shovels. Oh, don't you remember how Wagner coup was going to overthrow Putin and, and then, and then, and then it didn't happen. Don't you remember how the Russians, how, how, don't you remember how Bakhmut was Ukraine putting Russia into a trap and how Russia lost hundreds of thousands of men in Bakhmut? for a, a minimal number of losses for Ukraine, don't you? You remember how they just flipped the, flipped the script and just lie to us like that? So, so crazy. And then you get the actual reports later on, on the down low, saying that the Russian losses, saying that Russian losses were at 20, not even like 24,000 dead. Well, a little bit over 24,000 dead in June of this year. 14,000 back in February of this year, 2023. So let's say that it, let, let's get, even if we give that to them, right? Even if we give them the 6,000, just not to account for this attack, but to account for the entire summer. Let's just say it was really, really bad and Ukraine was giving them hell in their counteroffensive. Even if we give them that 6,000, and call it all deaths, not casualties, all deaths. That puts Russia up to 30,000 deaths. That's what it puts them at, 30,000 deaths. So for the Russians who expect 25% fatalities for their casualties, you can multiply that by four to get their casualty number. 120,000 casualties? in exchange for a confirmed 300,000 dead Ukrainians, likely a lot more now, because we got that obituary number from back in, what, August? Confirmed 300,000 Ukrainians versus, uh, 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 confirmed kills, 300,000 dead Ukrainians versus 120-something thousand Russian casualties? Even if we give them this 6,000, like hell, let's double it. Let's give them 12,000, right? Like, let, let, let's say they lost 6,000 specifically around Avdivka and the other 6,000 was from over the course of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. It was, they just really messed them up this time. All right, well, that's 36,000. 36,000 times two is what, 72,000? 72,000, and you multiply that by two again, 144,000 casualties. The numbers, no matter how we try to slice this up, just don't add up for Ukraine. It, they just don't, the numbers do not add up to a Ukrainian victory. They don't, and they honestly never have. 
But as we start approaching the, the slip and slide to destruction here for Ukraine, it every number we get, it just becomes more and more painfully obvious that they're not going to win. 6,000. And that's just one report. And we know that they lie. We know that they lie about the reports. They, we, oh my, like there was a report uh, a couple months ago when they were comparing the losses saying that the Russians had taken 300,000 casualties and that the Ukrainians had only taken around 200,000 casualties but that the Russian death rates were higher at around 50% and that Ukrainian death rates were deaths were only like 70 80,000 and the Russians were at double that in terms of deaths literally flipping the script and just straightforwardly lying to you when the Ukrainians have had higher fatality rates the entire war and higher casualties in total than the Russians have. So when you hear these talk, the talk of oh, Russia taking massive losses, we have no choice but to take that with a massive dose of salt because these people lie. And they love, they really like lying for Ukraine. And I, I take it with a grain of salt. But maybe it's true. But even if it is true, I mean, we just ran through the numbers together. Even if it is true, it's still not going to add up to Ukrainian victory. You're still going to lose. Even if we gave them 12,000 instead of just 6,000, even if we give them 12,000, the casualties for the Russians are still half of what we can confirm Ukraine has in deaths. And Ukrainian deaths have always made up half of their casualties. So 300,000 confirmed kills means 600,000 casualties. And you have people like Colonel McGregor who have now given another updated figure saying that half a million Ukrainians are dead. Half a million dead. That means that we are at or approaching the 1 million casualty mark. These numbers do not add up to Ukrainian victory at all. And yet we have people just straight up lying, even even now, straight up lying about Ukraine winning the war, how Russia's taking these losses, even though Ukraine is just fighting so valiantly, so bravely, but you have a million casualties? And the Russians have... Uh, at this rate, they're going to have a tenth of that. You're not even going to have a, a five to one. You're going to have a, a nine, ten to one in Russia's favor. And you're supposedly winning. You're conscripting women to go to the front lines because you've run out of men. And you're winning? No, they're losing. And they're losing badly. And with all the attention now shifting to Israel-Palestine, no one is talking about a ceasefire for Russia and Ukraine anymore. That ship has sailed. And, and I've just realized this talking about it. That ship has sailed now. Because now all of America's attention is going to be on Israel-Palestine. The international community has already shifted focus away from Ukraine to Israel-Palestine. And the fact that the, the fighting in uh, Ukraine is going to be in a bit of a lull right now because they're going into winter is only going to 
further that along because Israel is getting ready for a ground offensive into Gaza. It's going to heat up. Israel is going to take up the entire news cycle. Israel-Palestine is going to take the entire attention of the international community. No one's even looking at Ukraine anymore, meaning that no one is going to be there to extend that hand of a negotiated ceasefire. Even if Ukraine came around and said, you know what, we're ready for negotiations. We're ready to give up territory in exchange for peace. We're not going to do NATO. We're not gonna, we, we, we want peace. We want peace. Even if they did that right now, who's going to pick up that phone call? Who's going to pick up that phone call? Because after the, the peace summit in Arabia, Ukraine says they don't want peace. They're not interested in peace talks anymore. So, okay, you're not interested in peace talks. You're not giving any proposals that the Russians are interested in. So we'll just focus on Israel-Palestine now. And we'll just we'll just focus on Israel-Palestine and you can fight it out. No one's going to give Ukraine that off-ramp anymore. Meaning that they are all alone fighting against the Russians. And America, their principal supplier of good, of military supplies, is shifting gears to Israel as well. They have to share, they have to share their supply dumps of ammunition that they need desperately. Like they can't win this war without American material, but the material we're already giving them, mind you, but now they're having to share that with Israel. And well, what about Europe? Surely Europe's going to come and fill the gap. No, the Europeans can't even fill their own gap. They pro- remember when they promised to give a million shells to Ukraine over the course of a year? You, you remember when Zelensky was going to the EU asking for 250,000 shells a month? <laughs> and they came back to him and said, hey, how does a million shells in one year sound? Which, if you do the math, is literally one third of what he asked for, because 250,000 times four is a million. So 250,000 a month. Times four, that's a million every four months, 12 months in a year. He was actually asking for three million shells. And they said, we'll give you one million. How does that sound? But here we are. We're rapidly approaching March again. It, it seems far away, but we're, what? It's it's October now, almost Halloween. You have We're going into November. So November, December, January, February. We're about to be in March. March is, we're, we're past the halfway mark for March. They have six months left. Well, not even. They have like five months left before we get to March, the end of March. And as of now, it's uh, the, Europe has apparently over, only delivered about 30% of the artillery shells that they promised Ukraine back in March. 30% after almost seven full months. 30%. Not even a full third, 30%. So Ukraine asked for 3 million shells within a year. They promised 1 million shells in a year. And as of now, it's looking like Ukraine's going to walk away with 300,000 shells. Maybe maybe four or 500,000. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, there's still time, but it's not like the Europeans have any artillery production going on. And 
the Europeans aren't going to do it. And America is no longer giving you your the sole attention. That means Ukraine cannot go on with the war. Like it, it was, they were already in a losing war of attrition because Russian production was just outpacing us. And we were exhausting our supplies of weapons faster than we could supply it to Ukraine anyway. But now that we're not even giving them as much as we were before, and again, that by itself would be a good thing if we weren't trying to give it to Israel. But now that our, we're cutting back supplies on Ukraine, that means that the attrition goes faster. Ukraine gets ground down faster because they have less and less to work with. Uh, it's The numbers just really don't add up to Ukrainian victory. They really don't. And now we have Russia advancing around the town of Avdiivka. And they're about to do to that town what they did to Bakhmut. Like, I, I saw a, a war map that was published by the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, this was showing the battle around Avdiivka, uh, as well as the front line as a whole, because there were two separate maps. I'll probably put them up on the Twitter uh, sometime, eventually. Mm. Yeah, I, I, like, I have them ready. On, you know, I'll, I'll put them up on on the Twitter. So be sure to follow me at HW Geopolitics on X. <laughs> but yeah, you can see on these maps that if they're accurate, if they're accurate and like down to a T, right? Because there's obviously going to be, uh, there's obviously going to be room to maneuver and, you know, margins of error, especially when you're dealing with an active front line. But if that map is relatively accurate, then we can uh, we can look at it and see that Russia has taken multiple times more land than Ukraine managed to secure in their four month long offensive. Russia in, in four months of Ukrainian counteroffensive, Russia has taken multiple times more land than Ukraine took. Like you can see in the light blue, where Ukraine had their offensive gains, and then you see in the pink slash light red where Russia has had their gains in their offensive. Russia's gains are across the entire front line. Ukraine's gains are in like one tiny little nub, little nub in the front line. And the Russians are just swallowing all of Ukraine whole, meanwhile. And when you look at it, you can see that the Russians have taken like multiple times more land than Ukraine did. But no one's talking about the Russian offensive except for the Duran. No one's talking about it. It's it's not flashy. It's slow and grinding. But that's what Russia's been up to. And they've been doing this while Ukraine was fighting their offensive. Russia's been defending against them and counterattacking across the entire line. And winning on both fronts. The defensive and the offensive. And now you have this situation where the Russians have taken more land than Ukraine did. And they're already rolling back those gains. I mean, meanwhile, Ukraine has been bashing their head in against Bakhmut, trying to get it back, trying to get back into the city, which they just can't do because the Russians have solidified the line. And they're just dying for Bakhmut. Like, I, it's, I don't know why. I don't know why. Like, even if they took Bakhmut, what would taking Bakhmut at this point do for you?
whatever defensive structure that you had that Bakhmut was like a key hub for like defensive structures and logistical structures whatever Bakhmut was the hub for it's already been lost and all the surrounding territory has also been lost to Russia meaning whatever strategic value there was to Bakhmut has been nullified even if you take the city back by it because by itself you need the surrounding land. You'd just be putting yourself back into a fire trap for the Russians to grind you down again. You already lost nearly 100,000 men in the first battle of Bakhmut. Why are you still trying to take back this city? And why are you not trying to, I don't know, go around it? No, because you can't. Defense, Russia has defense in depth and the Russians have kept their lines relatively smooth. Like they haven't had large protrusions where they can be attacked from multiple angles and multiple sides and outflanked. They've been on a slow and consistent march across the breadth and width of Ukraine so that they can't be outflanked. Slow and methodical. And in the face of that, why are you trying to challenge them in a city where they already stole 100,000 men in terms of losses? You're going to attack into this same city where you were able to hold on to for months and you're you expect the russians who had the superiority of numbers and firepower to force you out you're going to expect that they aren't going to have those same advantages except bigger advantages now because they have superior firepower to you what are you expecting to gain i i don't get it i at this point i think the ukrainians are just doing shit for the sake of doing shit because there is nothing to be gained from doing that. There's nothing to be gained from doing that. And while they've been bashing their head in against Bakhmut, Russia's been putting Avdiivka into a cauldron, uh, which is uh, a it's a term which, if I have to describe it, is just a, a really, really big fire trap. Like you can see it on a map type fire trap instead of just oh, you walked into the line of sight of multiple machine gun nests. You know, uh, the strategic equivalent of that, a big uh yeah you captured this town but all the hills surrounding the town have artillery on them so you've walked into a fire trap and you can see it on a map so that's what a cauldron is and they put the entire town of Avdivka into a cauldron by advancing not into Avdivka, but around Avdivka. and you can see it on the map that the uh, institute for the study of war put up that the russians have basically uh, just like with Bakhmut, right? Because when the Ukrainians were holding on to Bakhmut, Russia knew that it was going to be a struggle to get into Bakhmut. So what they did was they just advanced around it again in a solid line. So if you have, you, you put your, uh, take your hands, make some fists, right? Turn them so that you, the, the top of your hands are facing you. And then you put your fists together where your the knuckles for your thumbs meet. And that little gap between your fists, that's the salient, that's the cauldron. And then your knuckles for your other fingers, that's the front line, right? So you just take your hands from your fists, put them together. Like you're about to give a fist bump to somebody, put your your knuckles together, boom. All right. Now, maybe I'm not describing that accurately, but yeah, some of you will get it. Some of you, <laughs> some of you will get it. But yeah, 
like you're about to get arrested. There you go. Put put your hands out. Form your fist. Put your hands out like you're about to get arrested. Keep your the knuckles for your thumbs together, and you see that gap. That's where Avdiivka is, and your knuckles for your other fingers. That's where the front line is, right? That's what Russia's done in Avdiivka again, just like what they did with Bakhmut. They put them in the cauldron, and now everyone in there has the choice: stay and get bombed, or flee and give up the ground to the Russians. Now. Obviously, one of those is a better option than the other. But are they going to take that option? No, they're going to stay and they're going to get bombed. And uh, you can say that, it, yeah, they have to defend their land. But if you keep taking losses, like they cannot afford another Bakhmut. I'm sorry, they, they can't afford another Bakhmut. They can't afford to sit there and lose another 80, 90,000 plus men in a single battle just to lose like they they're already being pressed again on the entire front you can't afford to be losing that that kind of manpower at this moment in time where the russians are putting pressure on the bubble from multiple angles if you do that and you lose in Avdiivka, the bubble will pop and it'll be a lot easier it's but this is where ukraine is and you can clearly see it on the the maps now Russia is just putting city after city into cauldrons and then bombing everything inside with artillery fire. It, it is very toxic. <laughs> yes, it is. But it's winning the war for Russia and they have no reason to stop. And it's it's just like I said, like I've been saying throughout this entire segment, the, the math, the numbers just are not adding up to Ukrainian victory. The, those shells that Ukraine was promised by the EU, those are clearly not going to materialize anytime soon. And now their principal donor, the United States, uh, is uh, the principal donor of war materials, is splitting its resources to manage two wars at once. And honestly, at this point, the only saving grace for Ukraine right now is that one, there's talk of giving them another $60 billion in Congress, and it's being packaged together with $41 billion in aid to Israel to hopefully get through, hopefully for if you're a warmonger. So they have that as a saving grace. That's not a guarantee, though. But what they also have is the more close-to-home reality of winter. Winter is coming, and that just might save them a couple and buy them a couple months of time. Because with winter over there, we saw it last year, when the winter comes around, it gets really, really muddy. It's the muddy season. And the rains, the, the, the rains are what causes the mud, and the soil is very deep, so the mud is also very deep. And But once winter comes, offensive operations, they'll be bogged down for the next few months, at least until April. So they'll have a good six months, maybe, because I, I, winter begins when it gets cold and obviously it gets cold over there faster but when the rains come in that's when you start to get bogged down then you have to wait for the ground to harden again before you can do real offensive operations uh and that's the saving grace for ukraine they they'll get about five to six months of peace once the rains start to really fall in ukraine but what happens then because the war is not going to stop just 
just because the rain comes. The water's not going to stop when the ground hardens either. When the ground hardens, what happens then? When the Russians are able to move again and the Ukrainians have to fight again. What happens? No one knows. And with a new war in Israel starting, no one seems to care. But I don't think we'll be waiting too long for the answer, though. Like I said earlier, when that when that ground hardens and Russia starts to put pressure on that bubble from multiple sides, that bubble will pop. The backbreaker offensive is coming. Ukraine has Ukraine is on borrowed time. We'll put it that way. Ukraine is on borrowed time. All right. Now we'll get into the weekly Israel-Palestine update. Uh, so what's going on now this week, well, last week, in Israel-Palestine? Uh, Israel has been conducting nighttime raids to try to shape the battlefield in preparation for the ground offensive, which has still been delayed. The Gaza Health Ministry saying that uh, 7,028 uh, have been killed. So we're above the 7,000 number. Probably around 8,000 now because I got this relatively early on in the week. Uh, so probably around eight, 9,000 right now. And of that 7,000, they claim that 2,900 were children. <clears throat> which is a shocking number. That more children have died in Palestine than all of the people killed from Hamas's attack on Israel. Actually, more than double the number of children. More than, more than twice as many children have died in Palestine than all the Israelis who died when Hamas attacked Israel. And uh, Hamas, uh, not Hamas, Gaza Health Ministry also says that 17,000 have been wounded. And the UN says about 1.4 million people of Gaza's 2.3 million residents have now been internally displaced. So these are people who are who are probably living in the north of Gaza, fleeing south to avoid the Israeli ground offensive. So they are now internally displaced. And there's been a lot of pressure on Egypt to open up their border crossing. They've let some people through, but they're really not. They're really not trying to do all that. Uh, Palestinians need to live in Palestine is what their uh, de facto position is. And we have uh, a sort of a final count for the number of hostages who were taken. Uh, and it appears that that was 224. 224 hostages were taken in that initial Hamas attack on Israel. Although many of these hostages have already been shot now in response to Israel bombing apartment complexes, which is something Hamas said they would do. But then again, it's, it's you already know they have a complete aversion to civilian losses. Well, I say aversion. I meant to say disregard. Both of these sides have complete disregard and all, in some cases, disdain for civilian losses, like for civilian life. Like they just, they just don't care. They do not care about civilian life. And I'm supposed to believe that one side is more moral than the other. I really don't. I really don't. The Israelis are bombing apartment complexes. And in response, Hamas kills a hostage. And then the Israelis, seeing what bombing apartment complexes are going to get them, decide to bomb more apartment complexes. And it's like, well, okay, well, we have a clear cause and effect here. 
And I get not negotiating with terrorists, but my, come on. <laughs> uh, you know what bombing that's going to do, and it's going to get these hostages executed. And executed they have been. It's If that situation alone did not let you know exactly what was up in this conflict, which is that neither of them give a, a flying fuck. Neither of them give a flying fuck about civilian casualties. I don't know what will. You're lost. <laughs> you're lo if you're still thinking of, oh, my side is more moral than the other. The Israelis were attacked. It never. This never would have had to happen if Hamas just didn't attack. Oh, Hamas, they're, they're the freedom fighters. They're, they're fighting to liberate Palestine. It's the resistance. This is what decolonization looks like. It's, you're lost. Now, you, you might be right that Israel is a, colo a colony. They're a colony. A, a Jewish colony in the Middle East. A colony with no mother nation because there was no Jewish state in the Middle East. But let's not play games here and pretend that one side is more justified than the other. Again, Hamas started this round of fighting. They started this round of fighting. And Israel likes to do ethnic cleansing when the rockets aren't flying. And then when the rockets are flying, Hezbollah is shooting civilians every bit as much as the Israelis do. They're firing rockets into regular civilian areas. Israel bombs apartment complexes, civilian areas. Hezbollah does a, a, the perhaps the greatest drive-by in human history. Men in paragliders and pickup trucks come in and shoot up civilians door to door. And Israel, in response, now wants to flatten Gaza and Lebanon. It, they, Israel has forced a million and a half people to leave their homes. A million and a half out of a, a place that only had 2.3 million people. And Israel has killed almost three, well, by now, 3,000 children. Just children alone. Like, let's really get the record straight here. Neither of these sides are worthy of my sympathy, my money, or my aid, or my military. Neither of them. And, and I'll be even more honest myself even if they were worthy it still wouldn't be given to them because they're not in my hemisphere they're not my country it's honestly just not our responsibility here and going back to what i said earlier you can say that israel's our ally as much as you want that means nothing if there is no consensus on what exactly the value of that alliance is and there is no consensus no consensus at all when you when we have culture war battles in the united states about which side is morally justified. People who people who claimed that the, everybody under the sun was anti-Semitic and hated Jews are now out there screaming, we hate the Jews because <laughs> we want to support Palestine. Well, one, we have serious issues uh, as, a, as a country. But two, how did we even get here? How did we get here where Americans are screaming at each other over a foreign nation's war? It's insane. It is insane. And again, clearly demonstrates that there is no consensus whatsoever on why exactly the U.S. is allied to Israel to begin with. And that consensus isn't going to find itself anytime soon. Uh, meanwhile, in other news, 
uh, in other news related to the topic, you have Netanyahu saying that, quote, just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or the terrorist attack of 9-11, we ourselves are not going to do a ceasefire. Uh, That was his justification for saying that he's not going to accept a ceasefire with Hamas. And he pointed to the United States. And here's where those those 9-11 comparisons come in. See, every time someone wants something from the United States, they like to compare themselves and, and their situation to uh, American history. You, you remember how Ukraine did that? Well, Zelensky did that when he had his speech in Congress. And he came there and he got, oh, just like Saratoga, we need the weapons to win the war. And just like, uh, just like the Battle of the Bulge, we'll push back the enemy. And just like, Bunker Hill, we're going to stand strong. All, all these references to American history. Why exactly would you go out of your way to make all these comparisons to our history? It's almost as if you want something. And here's, and clearly uh, Netanyahu got the message that if you want free money from Americans, you have to you have to do the pander. Oh yeah, it's just like, our, it, this is our 9-11. This is our 9-11. This is our moment. This is our Pearl Harbor. So we're going to, we deserve to do everything that you, you did. And you have to give us money to do it. It's like, well, okay, now let's let's calm down. <laughs> uh, we don't need to give you anything. And if you're going to do this, you're gonna, you should be doing it on your own. Now, will Congress have that much uh, common sense? No, they, they never do. Will, will they have enough dignity to at least have the dog wag the tail on this issue? No. Because they want a war with Iran. So they're going to be, they're going to let the tail wag the dog all the way into World War III. That's what they're going to do. So this guy is just going to run his mouth with no consequence. And we're all going to get dragged into a war because no ceasefire. Remember that. Remember that. That may have just been him signing Israel's death warrant. That man may have actually just signed Israel's death warrant. Because what have we been talking about these past few weeks? The impending diplomatic resolution to the Israel-Palestine war. When the sentiment shifts in favor of Palestine and calls get made to force a negotiated settlement on Israel and Palestine, Palestine will accept. And at that point, it's checkmate for Israel. Because if they say no to the ceasefire, if they say no to negotiations, they're the problem. If they go to the conference and they walk away because they don't like the terms, they're the problem. If they go, they say yes to the terms, and then they break their agreement afterwards, they're the problem. It's checkmate. Either way it goes, Palestine gets full sovereignty. Palestine wins. Game, set, and match Hamas. And Israel has now, under the leadership of Netanyahu, just shot themselves in the foot preemptively. They've already said no to a ceasefire. If there's not going to be any negotiations, then there's not going to be any room for sympathy for Israel at this moment in time. Now, people who are hyper-emotional about what happened to Israel still can't see it yet. They see, oh, he's justified. Oh, yeah, he's just... Because people here are still preoccupied with who's right and who's wrong, not action, reaction, and consequence. Action, reaction, consequence. Because when you look at action, reaction, and consequence, we can see that the actions of Hamas have caused a reaction from Israel, a disproportionate one, and their reaction is having the consequence of turning public sentiment in the entire Arab and Islamic world against 
Israel, even though Israel was the one attacked. So while people over here are sitting and obsessing over who was right and who was wrong, who's more moral than who, action, reaction, consequence, Israel's going to get gobsmacked. And they're not even gonna know they're not even gonna know what hit them. They're they're playing no game. They're not even playing the diplomacy game. They're not they're not trying to keep the other powers at bay. They're not trying to keep other people out of the war. They're just throwing threats around and they're throwing just as many bombs in just as many directions. They're not winning friends. They're not securing alliances. They're not securing neutralities of certain states. They're not making any deals. They're not talking to anybody. They're just running their mouth about how they're going to destroy Hamas. They're going to wipe Hezbollah off the face of the earth if they attack. Oh, we'll wipe Iran out too. Oh, we'll kill you. We'll kill them. We'll kill everybody. That's what they're saying. And while we, and by we, I mean other people, because you know, if I, I wouldn't be giving you this message if I was them. But while we sit here and argue about who was right and who was wrong, things that are ultimately going to be decided by history in the, in the long run, while we're over here deciding morals of a conflict between people who demonstrate a clear lack of them, action, reaction, and consequence are leading Israel down a very, very dark path. And that's why I titled last week's episode, Israel and All Her Fake Friends. Because they have a whole lot of fake friends telling them to do stupid things that are going to get Israel in very, very, very stupid situations. And they will look dumb, incredibly dumb, when all is said and done. When Hamas walks away and cleans their hands of the entire situation that they started, hiding behind the Palestinian Authority, while the Palestinian Authority works with other Arab nations and other Arab to make peace and get a ceasefire. And here, here this guy goes, shooting himself in the foot preemptively saying, we're not going to have a ceasefire. We're not going to accept one. Well, now you're a problem. Now you're a problem. Because not only are you saying that you want to bomb at least five countries, right? You're going to bomb Syria. You're going to bomb Lebanon to fight Hezbollah. You're going to bomb Iran if, if they get involved or if Hezbollah gets involved and Iran doesn't do anything. You're still going to bomb Iran. You're going to bomb, you're going to bomb Jordan. You're just going to bomb everything. And you're going to bomb Palestine. So Palestine, Jordan, <laughs> Iran, Lebanon, and Syria, and maybe Iraq too, depending on whether you feel it or like it or not. So not only are you threatening an act of war against f five separate entities in this region, but you have preemptively preemptively dismissed the idea of a ceasefire preemptively dismissed the idea of peace talks you want war and this is exactly what i said israel needed to avoid doing is this is exactly what i said hamas would want they would want the, exactly this kind of perception that israel is creating for itself by its reaction the perception of not wanting peace, the perception of them being the big bad military power who's oppressing the poor and innocent and helpless Palestinian people. All the, 
the entire region is going to conveniently and very rapidly forget that Hamas started this round of fighting. No one's going to remember that when Israel is killing kids in Gaza. They're already killing kids in Gaza. You saw how the entire region responded when they thought that that hospital got bombed. Whole embassies were lit on fire. Mobs showed up at the Israeli and American embassies. That's where the situation is. And Israel is doing nothing to secure alliances. They're doing nothing to secure the neutrality of neighboring states. They're doing nothing. They're not, they're not working with other countries to get a little bit of help and assistance. They're, they're doing literally nothing to cover themselves on the diplomatic front, leaving a wide open lane for Palestine, Lebanon, and Iran and Arabia to run the show. Turkey is, has offered mediation. The and Israel is they're just they're nowhere to be found. They're not even an active participant in events, diplomatic events, which are unfolding that will work against them if they aren't present to represent themselves, because no one else in the region is going to represent Israel at these talks. You're not even going to you're not even going to buy yourself the time, like even if you have no intention of making peace, you could at least buy yourself some time by talking to the other major powers. Maybe you could work something out. Maybe you could keep them from getting involved. Maybe you could do a whole lot of things by just talking to people. Just talking does wonders, especially when you can back talk up with actions. But if you're, you're not even gonna do that. You're just gonna sit there and ignore everything going on around you and you're gonna focus on bombing people. You are the problem. This is exactly the perception that Israel needed to avoid the brutal oppressor, the brutal oppressor combined with the war crazed maniac who likes to bomb other countries for seemingly no reason. You're going to bomb Lebanon. You're going to, you're going to bomb Syria. You're going to bomb Iran. You're going to bomb Palestine. Maybe Iraq. What what exactly are you gonna achieve? What exactly are you gonna are you gonna accomplish here? Nothing will be accomplished. Real friends of Israel, and I said this last episode, real friends of Israel would have sat them down and said, Look, we get that you're upset, but you need to pay attention and keep your eyes on the ball. If you do this, it's over for you. I get that you are, this is your 9-11, you're upset, but you need to sit down and take one for the team, the Israeli team. You need, this time of all times is the best time to exercise restraint. That's what real friends of Israel would have been telling them. Instead, they have all these fake friends like, like Nikki Haley talking about some Finish them like this is a Mortal Kombat game. The only people who are going to get finished is Israel if this keeps going on down this path. Netanyahu may have just signed Israel's death warrant by saying he is not in faith, that he's not going to have a ceasefire. He may have actually just killed Israel with those words. And none of these Israel simps have even noticed. They're too busy hyping Israel up. They're too busy 
they're too busy getting Israel into stupid situations by enabling them to do stupid things when they have the power to say no. They have the power to be good friends and say, look, this isn't good for you. But they're not real friends. They think they are, but they're not. Real friends would have told you, hey, you got to sit your head down. But that's not what they did. They, they want Israel to go die. That's what they want. That's what they're telling Israel to do. Go die. Commit national suicide by attacking Gaza. Send all of your troops into Gaza and get shot from every angle from guerrilla fighters. And, and as you do so, get bombed by, by Hezbollah. We want you to get bombed by Hezbollah. That, that's what you're saying when you say they need to go into Gaza. They need to destroy Hamas. That, that's what you're saying because they're not going to destroy Hamas. We all know they're not going to destroy Hamas. They're never going to destroy Hamas. They have no capacity to destroy Hamas. And they have demonstrated that lack of capacity for decades. Now is not different. They can't destroy Hamas. Every attempt that they make to destroy Hamas just breeds more Hamas members. The only way you destroy Hamas is with a lasting peace. Hamas cannot exist in a peacetime environment. That is the only way you can kill them. That's the only way you get rid of Hamas. But they're not going to do that. They're going to invade Gaza in pursuit of a, a strategic goal, a strategic aim that they have no ability to achieve at all. And quite frankly, no plan to achieve either. And the act of doing so, the act of trying to do that, will pull them into a war with Hezbollah, who will bomb them from the north. And if they retaliate against Hezbollah, they're attacking Lebanon. And attacking Lebanon and attacking Hezbollah is attacking an Iranian ally. Now you get Iran, you get Iran involved. The key here is restraint. The key here is achieving a lasting peace with Palestine. That's how you fight Hamas. You need a peacetime environment. They cannot exist. Extremist groups cannot exist in a peacetime environment. Israel doesn't have to die. But you have all these fake friends telling them to do exactly that. Kill themselves. They're telling Israel to kill themselves. Go attack Gaza. Go on. Do it. Finish them. And get lit up from every angle. Because they... And what's shocking is that everyone knows that, that that's exactly what's going to happen the second they go into Gaza. Everyone knows that that is exactly what's going to happen. The second they go into Gaza, Hezbollah is going to open up them rockets. And it's going to be... It's going to be like the 4th of July, except the, the rockets are coming down instead of going up. And everyone talking about Israel needs to go into Gaza. They need to they need to take it to the terrorists and destroy those savages. Look at how look at the photos, look at the video. All these people talking about this are advocating. They know what's going to happen to Israel the second Israel attacks Gaza. And they're still talking about doing this shit. It's it uh, it's crazy. This shit is crazy. It's insane to watch. And and I it's hard to articulate. 
Right. Because it, it's hard to articulate something that seems so obvious to yourself, but just is so completely lost on people who should know better. It's hard to articulate it because where do you start? Do, do I start with the regional? The, the region already doesn't like you. Do I start with Iran being a much bigger power than you thought it was? Do I start with the fact that you've never once destroyed Hamas in the entirety of its existence when you've been trying to destroy them? Do I start with the, the tens of thousands of rockets Hezbollah has that you already can't defend against? You can't, you couldn't defend against 5,000 rockets from Hamas. The Iron Dome was overwhelmed and you already need a resupply from, from Big Daddy America. What are you going to do again if Hezbollah comes in raining tens of thousands of rockets on you? Why would you put yourself in that situation? And why, and why as, some, as a, someone who stands with Israel, why would you tell them to put themselves in that situation? To get revenge against Hamas. Why would you, why would you set Israel up for failure like that? Why would you do that? I, I can't wrap my mind around this. I really can't. I think people have actually gone insane over this. I think people have actually lost their fucking marbles. People are all the way off their rock. If, uh, and my goodness, it's it's been uh, uh, one of the saddest things to watch Ben Shapiro just fall into madness. Like I, I could sit here and rag on him all day, but honestly, it's it's more sad than anything else. He is contributing, he is contributing to the death of his homeland because he, he clearly feels more of an affinity to Israel than he does the United States. He wants the United States to fight Israel's war. And by saying the things he's saying, by doing the things that he's doing and advocating for the things he is advocating for, he is inadvertently advocating the destruction, the national suicide of the Israeli state. Attacking Gaza will kill Israel as a nation. And it's obvious to even the most casual of observers who know anything about the geopolitics here. If you know that Israel, if they go against Gaza, if you know that they're going to get pulled into a war with Hezbollah and Iran, why would you let them go into Gaza? Why would you tell them to do that? I... I don't understand. And maybe I never will. I just can't. I just can't. There's no... Setting them up for that kind of uh, self-destruction. That's uh, just a new level of setting someone up for failure. Like, talk about setting someone up for failure. You know they're not going to destroy Hamas. They have never destroyed Hamas. And yet you're going to tell them to go destroy Hamas. Something that they have never been able to do. Knowing full well that attacking Gaza in this way is going to get them attacked by Hezbollah. They couldn't defend it. My goodness, bro. My goodness, bro. So many people are going to have the death of a nation on their hands. So many people are going to have the death of a nation on their hands. It's, man, 
the craziest part is that I'm the one telling you this. Isn't that crazy? That I, the person who wants nothing to do with this situation at all, I'm the one giving real advice, real friend shit, <laughs> real friend kind of advice to Israel. And I want nothing to do with your conflict. I want nothing to do with this. And yet I have given you not twice now better advice than all these these talk talk talking heads who are going to march you in to the grinder where you will die who will march you into the jaws of everybody in that region who already doesn't like you and this guy netanyahu doesn't want to cease fire and is gonna and, and then has the audacity to cite american history as if the american history <laughs> that he's citing was a good example you don't want to follow our example from 9-11. You don't want to take our lead. What, you, you want to go into Afghanistan too? Goofy? No. My goodness. Oh. It's so bizarre to be in this situation. It's so bizarre. Because so many people who should know better will have the death of a nation on their hands. My goodness, but I'll, I'll digress. I'll digress. I still have to get through the rest of this segment, but my goodness, like you have a, you have a, a, a joint statement, which has been signed by the foreign ministers of nine Arab countries who have condemned uh, what they've described as the targeting of civilians and violations of international law in Gaza, which is exactly what's happened. I mean, more kids have died in Gaza than the total number of of people who died in Israel as a result of Hamas's attacks. More than twice as many kids died than all the Israelis who died in Hamas's attack. If that's not evidence of the deliberate targeting of civilians and violations of international law, I don't know what is. Should we add on top of that Israel blockading Gaza, putting them under siege, no food, no water, no electricity, no fuel? Should we put on top of that bombing apartment complexes? Where where do we want to stop? Where do we want to begin? Like, my goodness. No wonder. And this is exactly what they should have been trying to avoid. But they aren't thinking. They aren't thinking. And so all this is just going on with no interference from Israel. No interference. Not even an attempt. Like, if you're going to do something that you already know is unpopular with all of your neighbors, you could at the very least try to keep them off your ass. Israel, uh, Israel is just absent on the diplomatic scene. I haven't seen anything from Israeli ministers talking to any other country. Iran's foreign minister, that guy is doing a marathon across the entire region. He's going from country to country to country to country to country. That guy is rallying support. The Prince of Arabia, he's rallying support. What's Israel doing? nothing nothing they're just sitting there and allowing all this to happen around them they're not paying attention their negligence is going to get them wrecked and we're sitting here enabling them we're going to give you 41 billion dollars for what so they can die so you can enable them to go into gaza and die we can't fight iran we're we're not gonna 
we're going to do no better at destroying Hamas or Hezbollah than Israel's going to be able to do. It's impossible to destroy an insurgent group with air power. You're not going to do it. And even with ground power, it's still, you're, you're getting yourself into a, a guerrilla war that plays to all their strengths. The only way that you can actually rid yourself of Hamas and Hezbollah is peace, a long standing, solid peace where everyone has a stake in maintaining that peace. That's the only way that you're going to get rid of these people. But that's the last thing on the minds of these people who lead Israel, these people who are currently leading us into this war. Peace is, is the best option to clean house of these terrorist groups. Terrorism doesn't do well with peace. That's why you need it. If you actually want to get rid of Hamas, if you actually want to get rid of Hezbollah, you actually want to get rid of ISIS, well, you just stopped giving them U.S. money, but if you actually want to get rid of all these terrorist groups, you need peace. That's what you need. You need a strong and robust and prosperous peacetime environment where everybody in that peace has a stake, a good reason to maintain that peace so that everyone will work together to maintain it. That's the way out. But that would require talking to the other side. And we already know that the, the leaders of America right now are too immature for that. They don't even want to talk to Russia. They don't want to talk to China. You, you, think, you think they're going to they're going to encourage Israel to talk to them? They, and Israel isn't thinking clearly at all. They're going headfirst into revenge and it's going to get them killed. My goodness, uh, we have we have Biden, Biden coming out, uh, and in defense of Israel's attacks on Gaza, because uh, again people are now condemning Israel for attacks on civilians, the it, the tide is coming in. Now, will you avoid the tidal wave? Is the question. Biden isn't going to help you. This guy's come out in defending Israel's attacks on Gaza, saying innocents have been killed, and it is it's the price of waging war. Is he says. Now, he also went on to cast doubt on the death toll figures coming out of Palestine. You're, so you're going to justify the killing of the civilians, and then you're going to say that the civilian casualties are lower than they actually are. When you know, when you know for a fact, these people are bombing apartment complexes. Like, come on now. Come on now. Come on now. Come on. Now. Like, I, I get I get who I'm dealing with. It's Biden. But like, come on now. It's, these people are actually going to talk Israel off of a cliff. Like, like, <laughs> like the realization is just slowly hitting me like, oh my goodness, these people are actually going to get Israel killed. And not a single one of them realized that that's exactly what they're doing. They think they're helping. They really think they're helping and they're going to get Israel killed. They're going to tell them, hey, you want to be a cool kid? You uh, j just jump off that bridge into the traffic. Jump off the bridge, bro. We got you. Hey, here's $41 billion. Now jump off the bridge. What good is that money going to do me if I'm dead? Is what the Israelis should be asking. But they're too busy talking about how much they hate the cars. So they're going to jump their goofy ass off and they're going to die. Oh my goodness. These people are actually going to get Israel killed. 
Wow. Wow. It's honestly surreal. Like, I know who we're dealing with, and I know that they're evil, but it's just the extent of the ne- the criminal negligence here. Because what else can you call this if not just a deliberate act of national sabotage? For also they can fight a war with Iran. They're gonna they're gonna be criminally negligent in allowing Israel to commit national suicide so they can have an excuse to fight a war with Iran. That's insane. And this guy's defending the de- the deaths of innocent civilians. Oh, it's the price of waging a war. The war didn't need to happen. That's the price of waging a war. Why are you giving them money? If, the, if that's the price of waging war, then why are you trying to give the Palestinians humanitarian aid? Which is only going to end up in the hands of Hamas. So At so many levels, Israel is being set up for failure. So many levels. And they're the last ones who are going to realize this. They and all their fake friends in media. And Biden, when he was asked, uh, when he was asked about the potential danger that an Israeli ground defensive into Gaza would pose to American hostages, because we have hostages over there, what kind of danger that Israel's ground defensive would pose to American hostages, he chose to get mad at the reporter. And didn't answer. He got upset at the dude who asked the question, didn't answer the question, and walks away. Whose president are you? Uh, like, like, you know, maybe he should have asked about the Israeli hostages. You know, maybe then Biden would have given him an answer. Hey, wouldn't Israel's ground defensive potentially endanger the Amer- I mean, Israeli hostages? Wouldn't it endanger those Israeli hostages? Maybe then he would have got a straight answer. But we're not allowed to care about American lives. I, I guess I guess that's just illegal in America now. <sighs> and he walks off. Like, we have such immature leadership. And it really shows in a time of crisis. Especially when you realize that this is a crisis of their own making. This is a crisis of our own making. And I say our... Because we didn't have to be there, first of all. We didn't have to be there, and we shouldn't be there. We shouldn't. We really shouldn't. Yet, when we have the opportunity to leave, and I'm not just talking about Israel. I'm talking about Syria, Iraq, and all these bases we have. We have when we have the opportunity to leave, we always stay. And then complain later about being attacked. Oh, they, they bombed our troop positions in Syria. Why are you in Syria? Get out. My, uh, uh. I mean, again, earlier, just earlier this year, there was a war powers resolution to get troops out of Syria. And what did they do? 300 voted to keep them to stay, to keep them in Syria. 300 people voted to keep them in Syria, in our Congress. And only 100 men voted to pull the troops out of Syria. And now these people have the audacity to complain about Iran bombing U.S. positions in Syria. You're the problem. You are the problem, and you made yourself the problem. You chose to be the problem. It's, it is really bad. I'll say that much, it's really bad. And now we're, we're looking awfully stupid. We're looking awfully stupid talking about the danger that Iran and terrorist groups pose to our isolated troop positions in Syria. Well, maybe if someone got them out of Syria, they wouldn't be there. Like, these are troops that wouldn't 
be there. Had these people done something useful and voted to withdraw them. Didn't do that with the War Powers Resolution. These are troops that wouldn't be there had officials in the Pentagon and the State Department not sabotaged Trump when he tried to get them out. They wouldn't be there had they let the president do his job. But no, they knew better. And now here we are. And these are troops that, above all else, wouldn't be there had we not gotten the bright idea of intervening militarily every time someone has a civil war somewhere. Yeah. So much buffoonery. So, so much buffoonery on, on display. And it all... It's hard to keep track of it all. It's hard to keep track of it all. And sometimes I, I just have to say it out loud to really, to really grasp what it is that I'm looking at. We're looking at people killing an entire nation by hyping them up to commit national suicide. These light bulbs, these geniuses, these absolute geniuses who create crises and then panic in when those crises happen. And they, and they have no response. They, they have no planning. They don't think even two steps ahead. They just do things for the sake of doing things. They have the, these grand plans in their head, but the second a single piece goes wrong, they have nothing. And they just blank. And they, they shoot in every direction. And... Man... Imagine when all this, when all the dust, the dust is settled, right? Imagine when the dust is settled and people are able to think clearly and people realize that we, all these fake friends got Israel killed for no reason. That in, in their greatest moment of need, in the greatest moment of need, they were sold out by everyone who claimed to be their friend. That's going to be a really sad reality to look back on five, maybe 10 years from now. Really, really sad. And honestly, it's tragic to watch it in real time. I can only imagine how much worse this is going to get for Israel and for Palestine once this ground offensive begins. But at the very least, on the other side of this, the Palestinians are going to have their sovereignty. That's almost baked into the cards now. But we'll just have to watch and wait and see. Yeah. But now, last but not least, we'll talk about a interview that Tucker Carlson did with Douglas McGregor. Very insightful, very needed for the current environment that we're in right now, where all we're getting is hyper-emotional trash and pseudo-intellectualism. Now, maybe you consider me to be pseudo-intellectual, but you know what? You know what? Just listen to this guy. <laughs> All right. But yeah, he Tucker Carlson, who by himself has been a, a bit of a voice of reason in the midst of the, the chaos that we see ourselves in with the Israel-Palestine war, because he remained consistent, like, well, OK, now let's let's not just jump head first into a war. We've seen where that gets us before. Maybe we should maybe we should take a step back, you know, and really think about what we're going to do here. So he's been a, a voice of reason in this. And Douglas McGregor, based as always, he's always, uh, goodness, he's also been a voice of reason over the course of the Ukraine war. And I'm happy that Carlson had him on for this interview 
and that Dux McGregor was also a voice of reason in this Israel war too. And yeah, we'll just get into it. Like Tucker, so he starts off talking about how the administration, the Biden administration, is pushing us towards war with Iran and how many Republicans who should be against this are instead all aboard the idea. And we can observe this ourselves. I've complained about this myself. Uh, the new House Speaker comes in talking about Israel's our top priority. Well, maybe it shouldn't be, but okay. <laughs> uh, and he openly criticized these calls for war as reckless and short-sighted. Tucker then asked, uh, and he asked this not just to the colonel, but he asked this to the audience. He then asked, what would war with Iran mean? And uh, he goes over some of the things that it would entail, but he also posed the question to Colonel Douglas McGregor. So, so Tucker asks if McGregor thinks that we're moving towards a war with Iran, and McGregor says yes, and that there doesn't seem to be uh, any consideration for what that means for us, Europe, the Middle East, or the world. And that is observable. Like, again, these people, they just, they have these grand plans in their head, and then they it just falls apart because they forget basic details. And when those basic details aren't accounted for, uh, and they encounter something that doesn't match up with what they planned, they just keep going forward as if nothing happened. And you get crisis. They just keep going. They don't know how to stop. They don't know how to learn. They, they really don't like having to learn from their own mistakes. They just, they just don't do it. They really don't like learning. They just like doing the same thing over and over and over again and they expect a different result. Some would call that insanity. Others call it leadership. <laughs> but yeah, he says, we're not considering what this would mean for ourselves, for Europe, the Middle East, or the world. McGregor brings up uh, as a part of that, how 20% of global oil and about 25% of global liquefied natural gas passes through the Strait of Hormuz. And for those who don't know, the Strait of Hormuz uh is where it's the it's the where the persian gulf meets the indian ocean so if you see a map you go over to arabia you see the arabian peninsula as a whole you see iran that narrow point where the peninsula the arabian peninsula sort of juts outwards towards iran that narrow point right there with the little spike that's the strait of hormuz that's what they're talking about what what, what mcgregor's talking about when he says 20 percent of global oil and 25% of global liquefied natural gas goes through that strait alone, the Strait of Hormuz. He talks about how Iran produces two to three million barrels of oil a day. Really important that they're doing that because oil prices are really, really high. Like I, I checked the other day, they're at like $88, $86 a gallon right now. That's still really high considering the average used to be somewhere in the low 70s. So it's come down from a hundred dollars but 88 is almost 90 is it doesn't come down that much and if there's a war here the price is obviously going to go up and not just oil but natural gas as well you have a global energy crunch at a time when prices are already high due to the war in ukraine a war which mind you is still going on which is the reason that the prices are still so high as they are that plus the United States has sabotaged its own energy production. Like the prices would probably be lower by now if we were, had we continued the trend that we were on if during the Trump administration of, you know, utilizing and extracting our own energy resources. Like 
at this point, the prices would have come back down to normal from whatever they spiked to. Uh, and I'll, I'll probably do a, like a, a segment talking about why exactly energy dominance, as Trump puts it, would be good for not just us, but the world. And like, and you know how I am. Uh, if it's good for us, that's good enough for me. But energy dominance in the United States would actually be good for the, the whole world. Uh, I, and and I'll, I'll get into that at some later point in the future when I've articulated my ideas and written them down. But yeah, he, this is this energy crunch that would be caused by starting a war in this massive, massive hub of energy production globally would be an obviously bad idea, especially if you're the United States and you're you've sabotaged your own energy independence and you're dependent on energy imports. Why would you cause the, the cost of oil to go up through your own actions and shoot yourself in the foot like that? Why would you do that? Yeah, so, so goofy, so very, very goofy. But the colonel also uh, mentions how Iran's, uh, excuse me, <laughs> they, he mentions how Iranian missile capabilities uh, are improving. And he says, quote, when you look at the military side, you have to look at the arsenal of missiles that Iran possesses. They can reach out 1,200 miles with great precision, with great precision, excuse me, very high explosive conventional warheads that would do enormous damage, destroying whole city blocks in places like Haifa, Tel Aviv, and Jerusalem, end quote. Now, he stresses he doesn't believe they would attack Jerusalem, because that's the capital of Israel, and, but you could do a lot of damage, and they have a lot of these missiles with this great range and great precision. Now, Tucker then goes on to ask, what would happen to the United States if we followed Senator Graham's, and this is Lindsey Graham, the, the guy who wants to bomb everything in Iran. We're going to take Iran out of the oil business. Iran, if you escalate this war, we're going to take... <laughs> I can't. I swear I can't take these people seriously. It's, it's, you can just see it. They're reading off a script. Like, that's how they sound. They sound like they're reading off of a script, and it sounds so forced and so nasty. Ugh. But he's talking about Lindsey Graham here when he says, what would happen to the United States if we followed Senator Graham's advice and began bombing critical infrastructure in Iran? And McGregor, to which McGregor says, quote, all of the bases that we have in Iraq and Syria, all of those would be would be targeted. I almost said liquidated. <laughs> all of them, not that different. All of those would be targeted. And this time they would target them accurately. And he's referring to how the Iranians back uh, in the later years of the Trump uh, administration, they fired rockets off at U.S. bases in the region in response to us killing uh, Soleimani. Uh, so he's saying that they would target them accurately this time. So, yeah, uh, all those bases will be targeted. And this time they would target them accurately. And this destruction would be wholesale. I would expect trouble here at home and in United States uh, because of the open border. Hezbollah has a very large operation in Mexico. There are no, there are no doubt many, many, many Hezbollah agents inside the United States. We can only begin to imagine the kinds of trouble they could cause, end quote. And this is correct. My fear is that should this go down in that way where these these terror cells get activated and they start causing trouble here in the United States. My fear is people are going to go, Oh my God, terrorism. This is why America has to 
fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here and then we'll be that'll be the the, the rallying call to go fight a war in Israel now whether or not it'll actually play out that way um we'll see we'll see strange things are happening with the American public lately I do love me a good American revolution but what it really demonstrates is the dangers of an open border not necessarily the dangers of terrorism to us I mean it's not like it's not like the Mexicans are terrorists or the Cubans or the Canadians. We really don't have terrorist groups over here like that, unless you count the cartels. But the cartels can be kept out with a wall. So even then, we really don't have to deal with that. How? But how did these terrorist cells get here? It's the open border. So he is completely correct in noting the open border. Will our leadership point to the open border as well? Uh, at some point they have to, because eventually people are going to ask, well, how exactly did they get here? And I think that it's going to help with that 2024 landslide that Trump's going to get when people come to the conclusion that had the border been secure, this never would have happened. And I think that's the correct conclusion to come to, but that's speculation on the future. But for the time being, he's completely correct. There are plenty of foreign agents in our country who've just been let in because of the open border. And they're doing whatever the hell they want with no no semblance of uh, surveillance. We're, we don't have anybody watching or monitoring them. They, they just have free reign in our country. Foreign agents, potentially terrorists, drug cartels, spies, you name it. They're just, they're just out here doing what... And with this crisis over there... We could potentially have Hezbollah cells or Hamas cells, terrorist cells in our country who've just walked in across the border and getting ready to start trouble. We could. It's a possibility. I, I won't make judgment as to whether or not it will happen, but it's a, poss it's a real possibility. And it's not one we can take lightly. And it's not one that's going to be solved anytime soon because they're coming in through the open border. You have to close the border. You need to get the border under control. Uh, he also talks about Iran's cyber warfare capabilities. Uh, McGregor brings up how uh, they've and they've basically taken all their best minds and put them onto missiles and cyber warfare, which is why they're pretty adept at both of those right now, and it's serving them well. They they knew what the meta was going to be, so they in, they invested in it. Uh, he, uh, McGregor also talks about, uh, he also brings up how Russia would likely get involved if we back up Israel in a fight against Hezbollah and Iran. He also goes on to explain how that might also compel Turkey to intervene against us as well. Essentially, if you can't just have the superpower jump in on the side of one guy and expect that the regional powers aren't going to jump you as well because you're tipping the scales way too far against Palestine and honestly getting in the way of their own interests by being there like a lot of these countries really don't want us there like Arabia put their talks to renew their security guarantee on hold over the Palestine issue a subtle declaration of independence from the empire Iran doesn't want us there Turkey doesn't like that we support the Kurds they don't like that we put them in uncomfortable situations they they really don't like that we didn't have much to say when the that bombing happened in Istanbul, they don't like that we want them to go fight Russia. When they're getting 
better deals working with the Russians and the Chinese. They don't like that we want them to admit Sweden and Finland into NATO, who also support Kurdish militant groups that they don't approve of. Turkey doesn't like us like that. They don't like us like that. We've just, we have gradually, gradually gotten and slipped and slided into their bad side. And they have slipped and slided into our bad side as well, because our leaders like control. They don't, they don't really like, they don't really like when you play both sides. It's either you're with us or you're against us. So they don't like countries like Belarus or Ukraine before you know the coup or Turkey, who try to get the best deal for themselves and play both sides. We don't like that. The Russians are fine with it. The Chinese are fine with it. It's us who can't handle it because we don't have control. And that's what it always boils down to, control. And we can't control Turkey. And we just gradually shifted away. We, we've drifted apart. As any friendship, as any alliance does over time, especially ones that are based on things that aren't necessarily common values or common history, you drift apart. Different things happen to you. You have different history. You have different regions. You have different concerns. And Turkey has drifted into the multipolar world camp, whereas we have drifted staunchly against that camp. They have more reason to side with Russia, with Syria, with Iran, with Arabia against us to bring about a multipolar world where they will have more flexibility in exercising their own national aims than pursuing a unipolar world where we get to decide how everything is run and, and we get to decide who does and doesn't have legitimate claims to this or that patch of land or, or we get to decide who does and doesn't get to have to wage war you know who does and doesn't get sanctioned they don't want to live in that world they want to live in the world where they have sovereignty. And the same goes for everybody else. So he brings up the possibility that Turkey might intervene against us as well. Uh, for one reason or another, they don't want to be on Russia's bad side by siding with us in this conflict. They don't want to, and they don't want to piss off the entire region and then be a pariah just to be a part of a, a Israel's war. They're not going to do that to themselves. They're going to side with the rest of the Islamic world. And the rest of the multipolar world is as a, a addition to that. Uh, they also talk. Uh, well, he also mentions how Turkey could move troops through Syria very quickly to get to Israel because they do have troops in northern Syria. And if Assad is there, he might let them through. Uh, I, I I hesitate to say that he would do that because he and Turkey don't really get along. But I wouldn't hesitate so much to say that Assad would allow Iranian troops to move through with little opposition. Turkey is a maybe. Iran is a definite maybe. A definite maybe. But that's why. I, but that's still a possibility. Uh, they talk about how they talk about the failure of U.S. sanctions policy and how it really only harms the everyday citizen, not the regime that we want to topple. They talk about how the U.S. isn't ready for a conflict like this. McGregor goes back to Iran's 1,200-mile ballistic missile capability, how they can fire these with great range and great accuracy, and how the existence of these missiles will essentially shape the battle space by forcing U.S. naval vessels to operate to the west of Sicily 
lest they end up in range of these missiles. And for those who don't know, Sicily is the big triangle-shaped island at the bottom of Italy. So if you, you find Italy, it'll go down, and the big triangle, that's Sicily. So our carrier battle groups, if they want to be safe from these missiles, would have to operate west of that to stay out of range of these Iranian missiles. Uh, but it's not just Iranian missiles either. As I mentioned earlier myself, it's also the Kinjal hypersonic missiles that Russia has because they're flying those planes over the Black Sea, they're fighter planes that are armed with Kinjals right now. These are not meant for ground targets because they would flatten a city with that. Well, a, a really big city block they would flatten with it. These are for ships. That's what they're for. It's to deter us, not, not, not Israel. It's to deter us. You send a hypersonic missile at a ship. I don't even want to know what type of collateral damage you could cause to all the other ships in the region. It would it would be to any navy man, to anybody who's a a navy enjoyer slash connoisseur. It would be a very sad day to see what happens to a, a a battle group that got hit with a hypersonic missile. We'll we'll say that, and it would essentially be a, a parallel to Russia using explosive shells in the opening of the. The Crimean War, when, back before it was the Crimean War, when it was just a war between them and the Ottomans, and they used explosive shells and it flattened the Ottoman Navy, and the whole thing burned down. And then it, it was a, a shot across the bow, figuratively, to all the other navies of Europe who had wooden ships. It's like, okay, well, that's dangerous. And this land power has it, not even a naval power. Oh, so they have defenses against our navies. They have explosive shells. And that's how Russia always is. As a land power, they want to defend against these things. And now they have the, the power and, and the influence to do it. They have planes flying over the Black Sea with hypersonic missiles. Now what are you going to do? You're going to send your ship into range of both Iran's long-range ballistic missiles and hypersonic missiles? Like, we're really pushing our luck with this. And I think that's one of the points that McGregor was trying to push across here. Like... This is not a safe space for the U.S. Navy to be operating in at all, at all. Because uh, he says, quote, once you move into the eastern Mediterranean, you are vulnerable to the Kinjal missiles and other missiles, cruise missiles and hypersonic missiles that the Russians have. This makes it very difficult to fly strikes in support of the Israeli Defense Force against Hezbollah, because now you're flying a very long distance if you deliver your ordinance, you have to land in Israel in order to refuel. Israel is going to operate under a hail, if not a rainstorm of missiles and rockets, making it very dangerous to do so, end quote. And that is 100% true, because again, Hezbollah has lots of regular, regular rockets that they're just going to be hurling at Israel. Israel was overwhelmed by the 5,000 Hamas sent their way. So what are they going to do against the tens of thousands that Hezbollah by themselves have? We wouldn't even get into uh, ballistic missiles that Iran might throw their way. We wouldn't even get into that. How are they going to handle Hezbollah? What are you going to do about that? You're not going to be able to destroy all the rocket sites. You haven't destroyed all the rocket sites in Hamas, in, in Palestine. How are you going to destroy all of Hezbollah's rockets? You can't. You can't. And that's the problem. They're going to be, so if you're talking about flying a plane from a carrier, which if you're going to be operating from a safe distance, it would be from Sicily, basically. 
you're going to fly hundreds of miles, which, granted, you can do in a modern fighter jet. It's just really, really long. And most seaborne planes aren't designed to go long distances, which is a bit strange, but it, it kind of makes sense because you have to be able to fit them onto the, the aircraft carrier. So, it's, so you have to sacrifice a little bit of size to get them there. And plus, they have to be able to take off. And it's a whole lot of things. It's a whole lot of logistical things. But you're talking about operating from Sicily. You have to fly over there. Most of these planes aren't going to be able to make the round trip back to the aircraft carrier. So they'd have to land in Israel after dropping their bombs to refuel. While Israel is going to be being bombed by Hezbollah rockets day and night. And it's not like they're not going to know where the airstrips are either. They're going to be bombing the airstrips. How are you, where are you going to land? You're going to land and then your your multi-million dollar fighter jet gets taken out with a, a, a rocket? That's an embarrassment. That's an irrecoverable loss. That's asymmetrical warfare. And all Hamas has to do, well, not Hamas, all Hezbollah has to do is keep sitting there rocket spamming so that you can't counter them. That's all they have to do. And they can counter U.S. air power because the second we land, we're going to get hit with a rocket. It, or, or we'll be in great danger until we take off. And that's an extremely hostile environment to be operating in. And we haven't operated in an environment that hostile in a really, really, really long time. A really, really, really long time. Uh, he also talks about how McGregor also talks about the weaknesses of the Army, not just the Air Force. And our logistics saying, quote, we have no real Army anymore. The army is down to perhaps 450,000. We uh, also talked about this in a previous episode. Uh, he, the army is down to perhaps 450,000. How much of that is ready to fight is open to debate. Much of it is sitting in Eastern Europe right now. We don't have the means to rapidly ship a large force of 80 to 100,000 ground troops, uh, 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 80 to 100,000 on the ground into the region, which means that we're reliant on special forces and right now 2,000 Marines and perhaps 2,000 special forces and special operations forces. That's not going to make much of a dent. So he's saying we don't have the ability to deploy a real army that has like, a, like not, oh, we sent 19,000 troops to Israel. No, 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 no. A real army, like eight to 100,000 men, a army army, not uh, a battalion not a core no no a real army that has some actual fighting capacity to it and some staying power to it that can take some losses and take some casualties and still keep going we don't have the ability to deploy that that kind of mass and we don't have the ability to do it rapidly either is what he's saying and so we're reliant on special forces like marines and other you know, like the airborne and mountaineers because they can get there quickly and they can be deployed rapidly. And the hope is that their superior training and superior firepower uh, will help them win the day against superior numbers of enemies. Will that prove to be true? In some cases it will, but at a certain point, the disproportionality of force dispositions might just screw you anyway. And then you're talking about taking major losses in your highly trained and highly skilled force that's going to take ages to recover it's just like the degradation of the ukrainian army how they're fully trained and fully 
combat prepared troops have been essentially wiped off the face of the earth and they're left with conscripts. They're left with regulars or less than regulars as their force. You don't want to take those kinds of casualties in your elite forces because it takes a really long time to get those back. That's why they're elite. And plus 2000 against a force of tens of thousands of men from Iran or from Turkey or from both, 2000 isn't gonna do much, right? 2000 isn't gonna do much, especially if they're gonna be under constant rocket fire from Hezbollah and Iran. It's, not, it's like he says, it's not gonna make much of a dent. He says the US and Israeli special forces have taken heavy losses in their commando raids in Gaza to try to get hostages out. And it says it doesn't bode well. And that it's basically, he's saying exactly what I warned would happen if you go into Gaza. You're going to get lit up from every angle because it's it's a guerrilla fighter's paradise. The urban environment is the is to this day still the best defensive structure in modern warfare. You cannot you can try to infiltrate it with special forces, but even then it's you're struggling. You're going to struggle. Taking a city is really hard. It's just there's so many places to hide. There's so many positions where you can shoot somebody from and it makes it a nightmare for everyone else. Uh, everyone who's attacking anyway. Uh, yeah, Tucker then asked the question, why hasn't why hasn't why haven't any of our generals spoken about the danger uh, that the situation poses to our country? Why haven't any of them talked about it? Uh, and McGregor points out that quote, most of these generals have never operated under artillery fire or rocket fire. They haven't seen direct fire combat. They haven't seen real war. End quote. And he says, uh, quote, this, uh, this is a high-intensity conventional war that we're looking at with the potential to go nuclear, end quote. So he's saying that our generals are just completely unaccustomed to the type of fighting that we would be subjecting ourselves to by getting involved. They have no experience in it. They have no ability to understand it because they've been operating in really low-intensity environments before where you're dealing with the worst you're dealing with is a, a, some bandit who has an IED, a, 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 a radio-controlled car with a bomb strapped to it, or maybe a mortar, and, and that's it. That's extremely low intensity. The air is never contested. We always have air superiority. That's why we can just fly a drone that has no ability to fight any other plane or any other aircraft. We can just fly a drone over, bomb them with impunity. And, the, and that's what we get this idea that two of our fighter aircraft are going to be able to take down Russia. And he doesn't say that, but this is something I'm extrapolating from what he's saying. Our experiences from never being contested in the air for decades now has really muddled our view of what an actual war between people who can fight you back looks like. And he's saying that our generals, are, they don't understand the danger because they have no reference point from which to come from. And other interviews from McGregor would also suggest that they're, they're not promoted based on merit, but they're promoted based on being yes men as well. So there's that as well. Uh, but yeah, he, he also called Israel a wild card, citing their nuclear capabilities and the lack of our knowledge on our part on what exactly would compel Israel to use those nuclear capabilities. And we don't know what would cause them to use it. Uh, so they are a wild card. 
And Ben Shapiro himself brought up the possibility that if Israel gets cornered, they could use a nuke. So this is a very, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's not talked about as much, but it's real. And it's, the danger is that we know Israel is going to be on the back foot on this in the end. In the end, Israel is going to be on the back foot. And will they use the nuke? Will they go to the nuclear option? That's, we don't know. But yeah, we'll just have to, we will just have to observe that one. But he's completely right here. Israel is a wild card, and they're not operating in the right state of mind. They're not operating anywhere near the right state of mind uh, to keep a clear head here. And we can observe that every day that goes by. McGregor then goes on to talk about how we've, quote, we've already used up most of our war stocks in Ukraine, and we're, and we've left Ukraine in a state of ruins. Uh, my, my notes got messed up there. We, he says, quote, we've already used up most of our war stocks in Ukraine, and we've left Ukraine in a state of ruins. Places on life support, a half a million dead. What are we going to do to Israel if we press ahead down this road, end quote? And he's implying that, one, we don't have the weapons to back Israel up. I mean, we, we spent it on Ukraine and lost still. We lost the war in Ukraine, gave them everything that we had we don't have anything left to give to israel so we're making the promises we're making israel that we're going to be there we're going to stand with them these are effectively empty promises because while we will be there we're not going to have anything to be there with we have no artillery we ran out we're low on rockets we're low on everything we're low on ammunition of everything and we're making promises that we're going to we're going to be by Israel's side. That's why the only thing we have is the carriers, the carriers in our air, in our air power. That's all we have left. We don't have ground support. We don't have that capacity anymore. We spent it on Ukraine. And look what that got Ukraine. Ruined and now abandoned because we're focusing on Israel now. Straight up abandoned after we ruined them as a nation, after we sabotaged the peace talks back in March and April of 2022. This war would have been over by now. We sabotaged it. We said you need to fight. We said we're going to give you all this equipment, all this money, all this aid. And here they are today, half a million dead and nothing to show for it. And we're just cleaning our hands. We're just washing our hands of the situation and moving on to the next war. That's what we did to Ukraine. McGregor is saying, if that's what we did to Ukraine, what are we going to do to Israel? How bad, how much worse off is Israel going to be going down this same path? And that's a very valid question to ask. I've answered it. I, I say that there might not be an Israel on the other side of this. And if there is one, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be... a a regional or major, it's not going to be anything. It's going to be a rump state. A rump state Israel, if there is an Israel at all. That's what I've said. He doesn't say exactly what he thinks is going to happen to Israel. But you can you can hear the worry. Well, you can hear the worry based on the words he is saying. Israel's in serious trouble. They might get wiped off the map. 
And that is a very real possibility. Very, very real possibility. Uh, now, he also... Where are we? Where are we? He brings up... He talks about how uh, the ruined cities. He talks about urban warfare and how we're sending our troops in here. And you're sending them into these cities that you're bombing... you bombed out with your airstrikes. Ruined cities, he says, are perfect hiding locations for irregular fighting forces looking to ambush you, which is something I've said because it's obvious. It's painfully obvious to even the most basic of observers. Urban environments are really good for guerrilla fighters so they can attack you from anywhere and then disappear just by walking a few yards away. You can't find them anymore. And McGregor brings up the high likelihood that our soldiers and Israeli soldiers would end up killing almost everything in sight because it's going to be really hard to differentiate Hamas from a regular civilian in Palestine because not all the civilians left. A, a good uh, last time I saw it was like a, around a half a million stayed in the northern parts of Gaza. That's still a lot of people. And you're talking about Hamas operating within that group of people are you shooting Hamas or are you shooting civilians? Are you shooting a civilian or are you shooting a Hamas member in disguise? You don't know. The second you get attacked, everybody attacking you looks like all the people who aren't attacking you. You're just going to pull the trigger. McGregor said it. When in doubt, pull the trigger. Because they're going to want to survive. They're going to want to live. They're, our soldiers are not going to sit there and ask themselves, is this the right guy that I'm shooting at? Do we have the right target? I know that all these uh, people shooting at me look just like the civilians, but I should take the time to make sure that I'm really shooting at the people shooting. No, some of our soldiers might. Other, you can't expect that of the entire force because you're you're dealing with men. You're be, you're dealing with people. Nerves get to you. They will shoot. When in doubt, pull the trigger. They will shoot at everything that they see. You're going to get lots of war crimes committed by this. You're going to get lots of atrocities. You're going to get lots of civilian deaths. And it's not going to look good for anybody. It's not going to look good for anybody. And he, yeah, we're going to annihilate everything in, in Gaza. We're, that's basically what he says is going to happen. We're going to annihilate everything in Gaza. That's his words. And interestingly, Colonel McGregor also talked about how Israel wanted to remove the Palestinian population from the area, which is something I speculated might also be in the cards for them, given their propensity for resettling uh, Palestinian land anyway. You've cleared out a million Palestinians already from Gaza. Well, now you have a perfect opportunity to take more land with your ground offensive. Ethnic cleansing. And, and these are people that we're told are just so moral, right? They're just so much more moral than those savage animal terrorists. No, neither of them are worthy of our sympathy. But he brings it up about how they want to remove the Palestinian population from the area. And he said, quote, remember the Israelis would like to push the, they, oh, goodness. Remember the Israelis would like to push the population out. The problem is if you push the population out or if you did into Egypt, you're going to run into trouble with the Egyptians. But even if you manage to get them there, 
you're only moving the problem that confronts you 20 to 30 miles away. As in, Gaza isn't that big of a place. You're just moving them right across the border to Egypt. And that's not very far. They can just come back any day that they want, especially Hamas. And they will come back any day that they want. What would stop them? What would stop them? What? You're going to build a wall to stop them? They're going to tunnel underneath you. Or better yet, they'll use their newest trick. They'll come in with paragliders, and you're not going to do anything about it. And they'll just shoot up whole city blocks. They would just set up base in the Sinai Desert where no one would get them. That's what you that's what you would do. And you would radicalize the entire population of Palestine against you because you will have forcibly removed them from their homes. Now they don't have anything better to do than to come attack you. Right. And this is why I say that the best way to deal with Hamas, the best way to deal with Hezbollah is a lasting and thorough peace where everybody has a stake in maintaining that peace. So you can have, if you have peace where the Israelis are good, but the Palestinians don't like the peace, well, they're going to work overtime to overturn the status quo. Nobody who doesn't have a stake in the peace is going to do very much to maintain it. And people who feel wronged by the peace are going to overturn it. People who feel that the status quo doesn't serve them are not going to go along with it. They're going to overturn the status quo. That's why China wants Taiwan. That's why the North Korea wants South Korea. That's why the Taliban fought us for 20 years to get us out of the country. When the, and that's why Russia is doing the things that they do now. When the status quo doesn't serve you, you are incentivized to work against the status quo until it does. That's why the Palestinians have to be accounted for when you have peace. It can't just be Israel gets everything that Israel wants. And in the case of Palestine, it can't just be the Palestine gets everything Palestine wants. If you're going to have a lasting peace, you need a peace that both sides can buy into and make their own. But I'll digress. Uh, where were we? Uh, there we go, there we go. Yeah, you're not moving these people very far away. You're moving them 20 to 30 miles away. Gaza isn't very big. Uh, so yeah, killing people, and this is uh, uh, McGregor's words, quote, in other words, killing people isn't going to solve the problem that can, uh, the, goodness, I'm choking with my words. In other words, killing people isn't going to solve the problem, but it is very attractive at the moment, and it's very difficult to talk people out of it, end quote. And that's what he says, and that's true. And you can see it with a lot of these commentators who keep egging Israel on to commit national suicide. Killing Hamas isn't going to do anything for you. For every Hamas member you kill, you've created another one. Because you will have radicalized someone else. That person has a family. And when he doesn't come home, guess who they're going to blame? You. You. That's who they're going to blame. They're going to be fresh meat for the Hamas recruitment campaign. Every little every little kid you get bombed, that you bomb right now, that kid had a sibling, probably. What do you think is going to happen to their sibling when they get older? And they remember what you did. This doesn't end. 
with violence unless you're going to be thorough, but you're not going to be allowed to be thorough because you're going to get a regional intervention against you if you're as thorough as you would need to be to finish this. So you can't finish this through military means. You have to negotiate and you need a peace that is amenable to both sides. But that is the last thing that they're, they're trying to hear. That's the last thing they're, try, they're trying to hear. And it's going to get it's going to ruin them. Uh, now, McGregor also talks about the livelihood of hostages being killed as we try to save them with these commando raids and with the uh, a ground invasion of Gaza, which is, again, very, very likely. I mean, if you're just going to go in with hundreds of thousands of men, well, clearly you're not interested in these hostages. We we told you we're going to kill one for every apartment you bomb. You're going to send an army? <laughs> Goodbye. Now all the hostages are dead. Savagery, yes. But so is sending an army of hundreds of thousands of men into an area that you to fight an enemy that you have never defeated before in an, a predominantly civilian zone. This is not good guys, bad guys, folks. It really isn't. Uh, now, McGregor also says, and he and he said what we talked about here in the podcast, which is that as this conflict goes on, as we see the death and the destruction caused by the Israeli counterattack, regional, global, and even American sentiments and opinions will shift steadily away from Israel. And once that happens, they will lose support from the West. They'll lose their support from America, and they'll be left to the, the tender mercy of the Arab world, of the, of the Islamic world on top of that. Exactly what we say would happen. And again, while people over here are obsessing about who was right and who was wrong, action, reaction, and consequence are shaping the reality that we are reacting to when we talk about morals and who was right and who was wrong. And that's that's real. That's basically what McGregor just said. As they attack, their, their reaction to the action that was Hamas attacking them. Action, Hamas attacks Israel. Savage, kills a thousand and a half people. Reaction, Israel invades and bombs the dog water out of Gaza. And consequence the arab world unites against israel and the rest of the world seeing the death and destruction in gaza turn a blind eye to israel because they view israel as a monster now there is no oh this guy was the right guy all oh, these guys were the more moral side once you get to that point it's what did you expect was going to happen and everyone will have forgotten that you were attacked first because of what you did after. Now you're the bad guy, you're the problem. Netanyahu already said no to a ceasefire. So what do you think is gonna happen after this? You think? I suppose McGregor is thinking about it. Tucker Carlson's thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. The folks over at Rogue News, they're thinking about it. Not a lot of other people are thinking about it. Not a lot of other people are thinking about it and what this means for Israel. But at the very least, we do have people like McGregor who are thinking, uh, because thinking is very rare right now. (sighs) Very, very rare. 
But that's why you've yet to value these nuggets of gold when you can get them, especially when truth is hard to find. But that's uh, the McGregor interview with Tucker Carlson. Great interview, great insights. Uh, good to have some clarity in an issue like this when uh, all we're getting is my side versus your side. My side's better than your side. It, it's important. I feel it's very, very important to get higher quality information than that. And so I brought you that interview. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. Israel is committing an act of national suicide, and none of their fake friends have noticed. But we've noticed. And as tough as it's going to be for them, we will have fun watching these changes together. I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus.